Hey guys, it's Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, a podcast about all things media from the Columbia Journalism Review. There was a surprising hit in the news cycle this week, Cat Person, a short story published in The New Yorker by author Kristen Rupenian. In basic terms, it's a story about a really bad date between a 20-year-old college student named Margot and a man, Robert, several years her senior. But what it's really about is self-deception in dating, the nuances of consent, and how women navigate the world. It went viral on social media in a way that fictional stories usually don't. And it got parody treatment from McSweeney's, a Twitter account curating men's reactions to the story, and dozens of takes across the media landscape. It's become one of the New Yorker's most read stories of the year, something that almost never happens with their fiction. My colleague Meg Dalton talked to the New Yorker's fiction editor, Deborah Treisman, about Cat Person's popularity, the role of fiction in a journalistic setting, and much more. Later in the podcast, we'll get into the media angle of the special election in Alabama this week and talk about a quixotic attempt to bring Gawker back from the dead. But first, here's Meg with Deborah Treisman. Kristen had met up with an agent in Michigan, I believe, where she was doing an MFA. And the agent sent me uh, that story. And when I first read it, it made me so uncomfortable. I almost wanted to stop reading it. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's not a, that, that, that's probably a very good reason to want to publish it. Um, you know, if it's getting under my skin, it will get under other people's skin. And there's a reason for that. And how long ago was that? Uh, I think I first I read the story maybe in October. So the timing kind of aligned with everything happening in the public conversation about sexual harassment and powerful men and sexism and consent and kind of all of those all of those things at once. Yeah, all of those issues were in the air. I think you know Kristen had written it, I, I believe, much earlier in the year. Um, so for for her, perhaps that, that wasn't necessarily what she was thinking while writing, but. Um, it definitely, you know, it hit a nerve right at this moment, partly for that reason. It's pretty rare that a short story goes viral. Everyone on social media and in my circles were sharing and commenting on it. Why do you think Cat Person got the response that it did? Yeah, I mean, it's almost a mystery to me um, in the sense that this does not happen. You know, it, it's it, at this point, I think the story's had something like 1.9 million page views on our website, um, which is crazy for any piece, you know, nonfiction or fiction. Um, so it just, it, but it was also exponential, you know, once a few people started tweeting about it or posting it on social media, you know, then it would retweet and retweet and retweet. So these things can build up. Um, why this particular story? Well, I just like I said, it hit a it hit a nerve, and I think many, many, many women out there recognized something of their own experiences in this particular story. One of my friends texted me saying that it could have been ripped from like an old diary entry. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people had reactions like that, and of course, you know, the particulars of this story—they're very specific. This is a twenty-year-old college student who works at an art art house, movie theater. It's a 34-year-old man who <laughs> we never find out what he does, actually. We don't know very much about him. But but there's so much that's specific about this story that it's it's odd to think that so many people feel it represents their experience. But there, obviously she's gotten at something in the way that people meet, 
you know, when they're getting to know each other through writing, whether it's email or texting. Um, and then in the way that they just, you know, can't, can't carry that connection over to a face-to-face um, situation. And, and I'm sure, you know, many, many people have gone through this situation of finding themselves alternately interested and uninterested and unable to extract themselves from a sexual situation. Is the popularity of the cat person directly tied to this moment? Um, like I was thinking, like if it had been published one year ago, three years ago, five years ago, like would it have gained the same traction? Well, I guess I have two answers to that. One, one is, you know, your friend uh, saying that the story had been ripped from her old diaries. Obviously, she's talking about an old experience. Many of the women who are saying they recognize themselves in this story are talking about experiences from 10 or 20 years ago. Um, so in that sense, you could publish it any time and people would relate to it. What's particular about this moment is that women are speaking up about these things. You know, we did just have this, this whole Me Too movement and and women are feeling able to talk about things that have happened to them, things they've done. So I, I think that was probably the driving force here. And I think one of the parts that I liked most about it, and I'm sure resonated with other women as well, um, is that in fiction, you can tackle certain ideas or topics or situations that you might not be able to tackle in, you know, journalistic reporting. So I'm wondering if you can kind of speak about the role of, you know, this short story, but also, you know, generally speaking, fiction at The New Yorker as a complement to the nonfiction that you regularly publish. Right. I mean, you know, the, our other big viral story of the year was was Ronan Farrow writing about Harvey Weinstein. Um, and, and there's obviously a, a sense of overlap, not not direct, because, you know, Kristen Repenian's story does not involve abuse in the workplace. It doesn't involve, you know, a, a situation of power, professional power. But it's... It, I think that I think the sort of valence is there can be there for both fiction and nonfiction, but uh, usually, usually the pieces that make a, a very quick and instant splash are the nonfiction pieces because they're breaking news. You know, it's very unusual for for a piece of fiction to seem to break news in that way. And it seems like in in this case, the reason why that happened is because it's so complementary to the nonfiction that the New Yorker is putting in its magazine and on its website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, but we also, there, there's one of the luxuries of working on fiction at the magazine is that I don't have any obligation to be topical. And and also one of the wonderful things about fiction is it has a shelf life. You know, people will go back and read stories from 10 years ago or, or 50 years ago, whereas you're very unlikely to read a news piece, even from a year ago, and find it still relevant. So fiction retains its relevance. And, you know, I, I would expect that this story will still feel relevant in five years or 10 years. I am wondering if there are any examples from the past of the short stories in the fiction section kind of mirroring the news cycle. Hmm. You know, I can't really think of anything like that. I mean, there was another story this year, a story called A Love Story by Samantha Hunt, um, which got a lot of attention, which um, was written about a lot. And which also kind of dealt with perceptions of womanhood and women's role in relationships and so on and motherhood. Uh, So I I feel that, you know, 
there is a there is a readership out there that is very actively engaging with, with these kinds of issues. But I can't think of a story that <laughs> I mean there hasn't been a, a piece of fiction that has that has, you know, exploded to this extent. You know, unless you want to go all the way back to to The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Cat Person was treated as somewhat of a news story and not necessarily as a piece of literature or short story. So I'm wondering how that alters the way that readers interpret it or perceive it or even criticize it. Yeah, I mean, some people read it as, as you know, completely missed the word fiction at the top of the page and, and read it as uh, some kind of confession or, or personal history or essay, which it very definitely wasn't. Um, and, and I think Kristen Rubenian would be horrified to to feel that people thought this character was her because it's a complicated character and it's not she's not a... a person that, you know, Kristen necessarily identifies with. But I think that the impulse to read this story as nonfiction comes from the fact that it feels so incredibly real. Um, you know, that every every moment, every excruciating moment of that date you, does evoke something in the reader, something familiar. So... I can understand why people read it that way, though, you know, it's, it's, it's not a story with an agenda. It's a story about characters interacting and interacting poorly. But I, I think, you know, it's not, I think some men have responded defensively, feeling that it was somehow a judgment of all men. But I also feel if, if you're going to read it that way, it's also a judgment of all women, because Margot is certainly not flawless um, in this encounter. I mean, there is. I mean, there's even that Twitter account that someone created in response to all of the male reactions on yeah. social media. Yeah, exactly. Were you surprised by that? I've been surprised by the whole thing. I mean, not surprised that people appreciate the story. I think it's an excellent story, but I'm just surprised by by how personally people have taken it. Um, it's not something I've I've witnessed in in 20 years at the magazine. And what do you think this means for fiction overall in kind of a journalistic landscape? Well, I really hope that all of these people who got so fired up about this story get fired up about the next one and the next one and the next one. I think I, I think for some people, I think some of the people who came to this story are not regular fiction readers and, you know, might have felt that there was nothing there for them and now maybe feel there's something there for them and they should keep looking. At least that's that's the effect I hope it has. And one of the thing, other things I was thinking about is like how how difficult it is for fiction to connect with online communities. At, at The New Yorker, how do you plan to uh, connect with online communities of readers moving forward? Well, you know, the, the, the podcast I mentioned has done that to a huge extent. And that has also succeeded far beyond what I, I thought it would. It's It's, you know, a podcast of someone reading a story and talking about it, and it gets a quarter of a million downloads a month. Um, so that really reassures me that there is an audience out there for fiction, that the audience out there for fiction is also technology aware, capable of downloading a podcast and listening to it. Um, so I, I'm not really despairing about fiction in the, in the world of social media. I am so glad to hear that. <laughs>
The biggest story in the political and media worlds this week came from Alabama, where Democrat Doug Jones defeated Republican Roy Moore in a special election for the vacated Senate seat of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. It's obviously a huge political story that tells us something about where we are in 2017, but there's a media angle to it as well. To discuss that, I'm joined by my colleagues Meg Dalton and senior staff writer Alex Neeson. Alex, when we talk about this particular story, what's the media side of it? I mean, obviously, the sort of collapse of Roy Moore's campaign for the Senate seat uh, was centered around reporting done by the Washington Post and a really bombshell investigation where these sort of decades-old allegations of sexual assault, uh, in some cases involving teenage girls, uh, were sort of brought to light, and that changed the course of the whole election. So the media angle really is that the tone of an entire election uh, was sort of shifted when this story broke. Yeah, and it shows the kind of significant impact that investigative reporting can have, you know, in the political space, even in the age of Trump, when, you know, we're constantly being called fake news and being undermined. It can still make a difference in terms of policy and politics. And it came as part of this larger sort of cultural reckoning, the Me Too movement, where there's a lot of reporting happening now in various industries and sectors surrounding sexual harassment uh, and sexual assault. And this was sort of a product of that movement uh, that had really tangible, immediate consequences in ways that we don't always see. Yeah, that struck me that this special election in December in Alabama, which usually would not register on the national conversation at all, really seemed to represent a coalescing of several different narratives that have been playing out in politics and the media and and socially. You had, as you mentioned, the Me Too movement. You had the Steve Bannon insurgency versus the Republican establishment. You had Donald Trump's agenda, for lack of a better term, on trial in some ways. And so into that morass stepped the Washington Post reporting. It was followed up by some great local reporting. Um, You know, the Post obviously led on this, but AL.com, which owns three of the biggest papers in the state, ran a front page editorial saying that Alabamians can do better than Roy Moore. Um, There was also some reporting about his actions at the Gadsden Mall back in the 1970s and 80s. So I think one of the big takeaways from this is just simply that journalism matters. And also that like sometimes the narrative is there's not a single narrative. Like there are so many moving parts. Like obviously investigative reporting had a huge impact on this election, but so did many other things. And I I don't think that there was that it was immediately clear what impact this reporting was going to have because the story breaks. um, It's, you know, national headlines all over the place. It's immediately followed up by local reporters in Alabama. But I think there was still some uncertainty about whether there would be any impact on voters, um, particularly because Roy Moore and his campaign staff fought so hard against the reporting and called it fake news. um, And, you know, we're taking these really hardline stances in opposition to the reporting and suggesting that women had been paid by The Washington Post um, to tell lies about him in an attempt to keep him out of Congress. Um, I don't think that it was immediately clear whether there was going to be an impact. Um, but, you know, yesterday's election revolts demonstrated that that there was uh, some really tangible influence. Personally, I've never been so happy to be wrong about something. <laughs> <laughs> 
You didn't think it was going to No, I, I mean, I, I wasn't sure because I just am very pessimistic these days. Yeah. So I, it's nice to be proven wrong. Yeah, I had no optimism that <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> reporting was going to matter like when people walked into a booth. I mean, and there's also the just the fact that there hasn't been a Democrat elected in Alabama in 25 years. So there was really nothing to suggest given... Given our climate, given the way that people in these regions often rail against the media and just do whatever they can to um, delegitimize report, otherwise solid reporting, I don't think there was really anything to suggest that this was going to be the outcome. And I think that maybe our pessimism stems from the fact that a lot of these other narratives that emerged post-election weren't really being covered during the campaign, right? You know, the the black voter turnout, for instance, and uh, GOTV efforts and the amount of spending that Doug Jones um, was doing, which was like, you know, 10 to 1 for between him and like Roy Moore. So I, I think these factors that maybe weren't being highlighted as much in the media coverage of the campaign, uh, you know, reared their heads, you know, today and last night. And there's also an interesting look at, um, you know, women accused Donald Trump of some of the same behaviors and absolutely nothing happened. Um, and in fact, you could argue that Donald Trump was rewarded in that he won the presidency uh, afterwards. Um, so, so you know, that Roy Moore could have such a taint on his campaign and, and still win, I think, was entirely within the realm of possibility in, in the minds of uh, of readers and, and of other reporters and stuff. Yeah, and if we think big picture about this from a media angle, as you mentioned, in 2016, the fall of 2016, allegations against Donald Trump didn't seem to impact voters all that much. In 2017, because of women coming forward and because of great reporting from the New York Times and the Washington Post and a host of other journalistic organizations that have gone into different industries and told the stories of sexual harassment and sexual abuse there, these charges against Roy Moore seem to stick in a way that they didn't a year ago. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's uh, worth noting like how media narratives can propel like a cultural movement forward because I don't think that it's journalism that sparked the Me Too movement or this reckoning that we're in. I think it's the women who who stepped forward to tell their stories that did that, but media um, sort of really embracing this narrative and deciding to dedicate the resources to pursuing these stories has really propelled that forward. And I think that that has a lot to do with why there were results um, or consequences for Roy Moore that didn't exist for Donald Trump a year ago. For our second topic, we turn to one of those outlets that was in many ways ahead of the curve reporting on the stories that became part of this moment. Gawker, the late lamented gossip blog, first reported on many of the men who have been named in the stories on sexual harassment that have come out over the last two months. It was, of course, shuttered after facing a lawsuit brought by Hulk Hogan and secretly funded by billionaire Trump supporter Peter Thiel. And the website's archives have been kind of sitting in legal limbo for more than a year. Now there's a battle over what will happen to them. Yeah, so Peter Thiel uh, is trying to buy the archives, uh, which is probably not a great move um, for the legacy of Gawker. We don't know his motive per se, but I think it's pretty clear what his motives yeah, we would kind be. Of, we kind of know his motive. <laughs> we kind of know his motive. So now a group of 
former Gawker executives and staffers uh, have started a Kickstarter campaign to raise money to buy the archives and also potentially bring Gawker back from the dead. Right. And the idea that Gawker, which has kind of in its death become uh, this legendary site that was first to a lot of things and is probably more appreciated by journalists from other outlets now than it was in the past. The idea that that would come back is an interesting one. I, I don't know personally what I think about that. I, I loved Gawker and read it all the time, but I wonder if bringing it back is something that's necessary or smart in this particular moment. Yeah, I mean, part of what made Gawker work when it existed was its tone and its ability to report on things that, air quotes, serious news outlets wouldn't touch. And and that's what made it valuable. I think that with respect to reporting on sexual harassment and assault and all these things that, at least by mainstream outlets, were considered rumors that are now being accepted as fact, I think the shift in tone and how we talk about those things might not accommodate Gawker's kind of really sassy, sort of irreverent tone. And I wonder sometimes, like, if, you know, the folks trying to buy Gawker are successful and they bring it back and and it just exists in the same way that it did a couple of years ago, I wonder how their reporting would be received by an audience that's now accustomed to hearing about these sorts of allegations and taking them much more seriously than we ever have in the past. I think this whole situation, again, as a you know, I was a huge Gawker fan, but I think Gawker served its role in a, in a really significant way. And I'm not sure if bringing it back would serve journalism uh, in this current moment, uh, especially considering that, like, the tone you mentioned, Alex, is being preserved in places like Jezebel and Splinter to an extent, which is kind of acts as, you know, it's it's sort of... Ghost of Gawker. Sort of ghost of Gawker, right? It's like Gawker mature. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah, it's like older brother Gawker. Yeah. <laughs> or older sister Gawker, rather. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wonder, too, like, there's been a lot of talk from journalists who have been writing about issues that relate to gender and and, and sexuality for much longer than we've been sort of in the middle of this Me Too movement. Um, there's a sort of fear of burnout on these stories or about the one bad allegation that's going to sort of get in the way of all of the others that are that are credible. And I wonder whether, uh, you know, Gawker was a gossip blog, you know, from inception. And I wonder if its treatment of these sorts of things as gossip would be would do more harm than good now, given that, you know, it's just so easy for the folks out there who would rather ignore these allegations. And we saw this with like the Roy Moore campaign to just dismiss them as gossip, as rumors, as just talk. Um, And I wonder if Gawker's reputation of reporting on those sorts of things and writing about that stuff would do more harm than good. I also don't think even Gawker as it actually was lives up or a new version could live up to the image that many of us have built up of what Gawker was, right? In death, it has become in some ways more than it was in life. There have been so many moments over the past year where we've seen online or I've thought to myself, man, if only Gawker were still around. And I think that kind of like hagiography of what Gawker did, and again, it did many really good things. Uh, It was a fun, smart, edgy place. I just don't know if any reincarnation of it could 
live up to those expectations. I think this this whole campaign just boils down to one word, and that's nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And that should be separated from the idea of preserving the archives, which we haven't really touched on, but is something that I think is obvious that we would want to do. Right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yes, yeah. definitely, definitely preserve the archives. So that's don't let Peter important. Thiel win. Peter Thiel, stay away. Yeah, I think um, one of the other things that I've kind of seen floating in like Twitter and, and other places is the idea about what Gawker did versus what we like imagine it to have done now. Um, and a lot of the stories that Gawker was writing posts about some of these allegations against like very prominent men. I think someone made the example of uh, Kevin Spacey about some posts that had been written on Gawker about Kevin Spacey ages ago and certainly about Harvey Weinstein, though he wasn't named is that even in those posts that Gawker wrote, they were linking to these other like really obscure gossip blogs. And so it wasn't even always necessarily original Gawker reporting. It was sort of aggregation of these other websites that none of us have ever heard of and will never hear of because Gawker gets all the credit. Um, But I think that preserving Gawker as an archive is definitely something that's really important. And and it would be really bad if uh, Peter Thiel got a hold of them and, and got rid of it. Plus, like, I mean, Gawker was made by the people on that staff and all of those people have been scooped up by other outlets. And so if, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to figure out, like, if Gawker were to be reborn, like, who would make up Gawker today? Like, what would the voice of Gawker be? Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I mean, I, I think it's fun to wonder, like, what that trial and error process would look like if they were to get it back and get the money that they need to open a newsroom again and, and watch them sort of figure it out. I think that that's kind of fun to imagine. Um, I don't know how realistic that is, though. Yeah. So I think we agree that preserving the archives is absolutely something that should happen. We've returned to them over the past couple months over and over again to stories that have come about in this Me Too moment that were first broached on Gawker or some of its uh, sister sites that do still exist. So keeping those archives, very important. Bringing it back from the dead, perhaps not so much. Either way, keep Peter Thiel away from it as far as possible. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank New Yorker fiction editor Deborah Treisman for talking with Meg earlier. And thank Alex for being here in studio with us. Of course. Please check out all the great content we've got up at cjr.org. We appreciate you reading. We appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next week.